0: Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Since becoming a member of the Senedd for the Neath nice constituency in 2016, Jeremy Miles has held some of the most significant roles in Welsh government, including Council General, Minister for European Transition, and currently Minister for Education and Welsh Language, in a difficult time for the sector post-pandemic. We are delighted today to be joined by Jeremy Miles. Hello, Jeremy. Hi. Uh, thank you for being here. So, as we said, most of our listeners will know you from your time in Welsh Government, but I wondered if you could give us sort of a quick overview of your background in Ponta de Lice and through to university and your sort of initial decision to enter politics.
1: Yeah, well, I think in a way, you know, being Education Minister, um, education really is sort of uh, the thread that runs throughout my life, the golden thread, really, I think of it in many ways. So, as you say, I was born and raised in Ponta de Lice in... Uh, a Welsh-speaking home. Uh, I went to school in the village, Welsh Media Primary, and my parents were both very supportive of uh, my schooling. I think probably, I hope they wouldn't mind me saying this, they probably, you know, hadn't made the most of the opportunity themselves and were really keen and supportive of both me and my sister in all we did at school. And, you know, I was the kind of kid who read every book in the library at school and, played musical instruments and and those sorts of things. So I I really relished, uh really relished my time in school. I went to a Slavera, a school of Slavera for my secondary school, for my comprehensive school. I think I'm right in saying that makes me the first education minister to have all of my education through the Welsh medium sector, which since I'm also Welsh language minister, I think, you know, has a sort of useful insight as a as a result of that. I guess politics surrounded as I, as I was growing up anyway My, my grandfathers on both sides were local councillors But it probably wasn't until I got too comprehensive That I you know, became politically aware myself really And part of that, as with a lot of people my age Was a little bit about the experience of the miners' strike Not in my own community But certainly in the communities which sent children to a slavera, and also very formative in, in my political worldview, if you like, was the fact that I was, you know, the fact that I'm gay. And I think growing up as a gay teenager, and I've spoken about this before, not having a sense of that being reflected back at you in society at all, obviously, but in particular at that time in school, you know, has really shaped uh, some of my political views in later life, if you think, about the importance of people feeling included and feeling, uh, you know, that they're not on the outside, if you like. So I think that was when I became probably first politically aware. Then I went to Oxford University to New College study law there. And I think probably it's true to say that I didn't really have any any idea of how much disparity in, you know, in in wealth there is in the UK until I had that experience, uh, which was really quite eye opening for me, really. So, yeah, so that was my education. I became a lawyer. I taught law for a year, actually, university in Warsaw, so that's been my only experience of teaching, and whilst I enjoyed it, I didn't think I was very good at it. Uh, so you know, I'm full of admiration for those who pursue a career uh, in teaching at any level, really, because I, I know that I wasn't cut out for that myself. Uh, yeah, so I practised law for a long time, and uh, was a partner at a law firm in London, uh, then I worked for media businesses after that, so ITV and NBC, the US TV network. And then I moved back to Wales, and the reason I did that was I'd been politically active throughout that period, and I was volunteering as, as a mentor for kids in East London where I lived, and you know, kids from disadvantaged backgrounds who you know needed some guidance, if you like, about how to, to take forward their studies or their 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 own kind of careers and aspirations. And it was pretty clear to me that you know they didn't have the same opportunities that I felt I had growing up in Wales in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and I decided, you know, that was a sort of moment of awakening, really, that I wanted to play my part in giving something back, if you like. So uh, that was the motivation for going into politics.
0: Had there always been Labour for you, Jeremy? I know you mentioned you had two uh, family members who were councillors. Were they Labour councillors? Is there always been something you were sort of brought up into? Or is it something you sort of found later in life, the Labour movement?
1: Yeah, no, they were, they were, they were both Labour uh, councillors. And so in my you know, in my village when I was growing up, I don't think I thought of anybody as being anything other than Labour, really, apart from uh, some people who used to go to chapel, who I uh, knew to be Plaid Cymru, and I didn't really, you know, have a very clear sense as a, as a kid of what what that meant, really, but, but you know, I suppose one of my political heroes is Jim Griffiths, who I, I felt, you know, found there to be no tension at all between a commitment to a Welsh language and Welsh, Welsh language culture on the one hand, and a profound commitment to the Labour Party on the other and I think in in many ways you know that's also shaped my my politics
0: as well. I'm sure we'll get back onto that but I I did uh, want to talk about one thing which is the the sadness we had when we discovered that the website Miles for Beaconsfield is no longer (laughs) active. Um, Would you tell us a little bit about what you learned about politics and and yourself for standing in an election in a safe conservative seat (laughs) and it must be a bit different standing there than in South Wales.
1: Yeah, well, I think if you're thinking of a if you're thinking of a, of a you know a vocation in politics, it's useful to have a go at a, at a standing in a seat where you clearly have no prospect uh, of winning. But the reason it's important is because you know it does test it does test whether you feel that you're cut out for it really. And if you're standing somewhere like that, I was living in, in London. That was just before I moved back to Wales. You know the Labour Party has never been in Poe and Beckersfield. so my you know my uh, hats off to people who manage to keep the flame alive uh, in the leafy kind of, home counties of England for the Labour Party um, and it does teach you a little bit of political resilience and also you know when people ask you you know why you want to do it it helps you shape your you're thinking about that. So uh, whilst I had never any prospect of winning, I'm probably sure that was one of the motivations for doing it actually at that point. Do
0: <laughs> you think it also helps you just sort of understand a little bit about what the other side think and about how to sort of tailor your, your thoughts about trying to appeal to the broadest range of people?
1: I think it probably does. I You know, I don't think there was any prospect of appealing to a particularly broad range of people in Beaconsfield in 2010. But it's, you know, it's always good, I think, in politics to subject yourself to challenge from people who don't have the same worldview as you, even though you're never going to agree that constant challenge is good in terms of testing your own uh, thinking on things. And I, you know, I think I, I still think that's helpful. You know, when you're having a debate in the Senate for example, it, often that can be about uh, you know, political positioning, which is necessary but not especially illuminating. But you know, sometimes people will make a point, which whilst you might not admit it in the chamber, does make you go away and think, "Have I got that quite right?" And you know, that's all—that's very positive thing, I think.
0: So I, I, you know, it's not—it's not a massive secret. You did try and uh, win the selection at Aberavon in in twenty fifteen, very narrowly losing out to Stephen Kinnock. But what made you choose? Senate rather than pursuing uh, another Westminster constituency?
1: I think the reason I s- tried to seek this election for Parliament was because when I lived in London, I had just more experience of being in and out of the House of Commons f- for various things. And so I probably had more familiarity, if I'm honest, with the, uh, you know, the workings of Parliament. But ultimately, I-, I started off by telling you that education was one of my Kind of drivers in politics really uh, and then you start to think where is it that i can make the most impact in relation to the things i care most about uh and and for me that was that was then the senate and so i had an opportunity when gwenda when gwenda thomas stood down there was a vacancy and uh, i'm now representing me
0: what was your first impressions of the Senate when you were elected how would you compare it to the uk parliament <laughs>
1: Well, it's very different, isn't it? So the culture is very different, and I think, if I'm completely honest, it took me a moment to adjust to what I felt was a different way of doing politics and being political. So, you know, the electoral system is one thing, but the political culture around the senate is also obviously very different from the culture in, in Parliament. I mean, I've, I've got no great insight into the culture in Parliament, I hasten to add, but it's pretty obviously the case but I think it doesn't take very long to recognise that we have a political system in Wales uh, in democratic devolution which uh, encourages collaborative working when that's possible in fact needs it in many many ways but you know that's not at the cost of as I say you know that political debate Um, you know I think in many ways I'm more suited to the political culture of the Senedd than I would have been to parliament actually
0: sort of a month of being elected, you, you sort of were exposed and engaged in one of the most interesting or, well, interesting, toxic, whatever choice words you may have, uh, political debates in British history, which was the Brexit referendum and how that, and we all know how that sort of overshadowed the last six years or so. How would you reflect on that process sort of six years later and, and what did you really learn about the UK, Wales, your own constituency of Neath, during that process up until now?
1: So it's a very salutary lesson, I think, in political terms, that the you know, vocation that you choose is unpredictable. I would never have chosen the first significant political you know, development after being elected to the Senate was the vote to leave the European Union, because it's you know, obviously coloured everything since and will do for a very long time again. And I remember feeling that warning when the results came through very disorientated if you like because you know it's hard to predict these things isn't it but uh, I felt that I was out of touch if I'm completely honest not having predicted the outcome I, I felt that the fact that Wales had also voted to leave the European Union was particularly you know obviously disappointing to me but I was you know particularly surprised that I hadn't understood that correctly but you know and then the, after that most politicians will tell you you obviously you have two sets of you know political discussions going on one is the kind of the kind of thing that you see in the senate which is the political debate and it was pretty ferocious for quite a long time obviously in in some ways even more so in parliament but you're also having discussions with your constituents and others about what had led people to vote for leaving and i think you know there's lessons for us all to learn from those sorts of discussions as well and then obviously became brexit minister and i think I feel, at least, I saw firsthand there, you know, a UK government, a Conservative government operating a vision for the UK and for politics, which I found, you know, pretty repulsive, to be honest, and, you know, very often rising roughshod over any other political opinion, however well-intentioned, well-argued, well-supported, actually. Um, and it was my f- sort of first practical glimpse to that sort of, you know, bullying unionism, I would call it really, which was sort of turbocharged then under Boris Johnson, um, and which is, you know, very bad news for the UK, very bad news for Wales, certainly. You know, and I think the experience of Brexit is a, is a litany of broken promises, isn't it, really? You know, a campaign which was profoundly misleading on the part of those making the pledges about what would happen if we left. And all those promises have been broken. And I think it kind of culminated, really, for me at least, in the Internal Market Act, which was a, a deliberately provocative act, I think, and obviously took the UK government to the to the uh, to court around that. Clearly, that didn't succeed in the end. Uh, but I think you know that is a very bad prospectus for the future of the UK if that's how conservative governments in Westminster are going to continue to behave.
0: Well, what do you think the process has done to our politics and to people's trust in politicians, whether that be? the whole process around, you know, politicians voting eventually to leave the EU, whether that is just what they were told during the referendum process?
1: Well, I think where we we are at the moment is, you know, clearly, as I said, promises were made which have not been kept. What I think has happened, though, in the period since Brexit, obviously, Covid has dominated every aspect of life, hasn't it? And has completely transformed our lives in the last you know, two and a bit years, and has obviously, I think, disguised some of the impacts of Brexit, but it, they're, they're becoming a lot clearer now, and, you know, what we can't have is a situation where just saying, you know, Brexit closes down political debate, so we need to find a way of having an honest discussion about some of this. We can already see some of the loudest uh, advocates of Brexit in the, in the press, uh, you know, no saying. Actually, aspects of it have been very damaging. So there's the beginning. There of a kind of more honest discussion. But you know, for those of us like myself who argue that we should stay in the European Union, we need to understand as well that simply saying that isn't going to be persuasive enough. We need to show people uh, why we why we were right. And I think uh, you know that's a a big task.
0: Uh, I, I was going to. I was going to ask. You know, the, the, obviously not asking you to comment necessarily on how the UK Labour Party operates, but do you think it is incumbent upon all politicians really to highlight these problems? And do you think that sometimes there's a tendency to think that they're still relitigating old elections rather than fighting new ones?
1: Well, where we are today is that we are still in the territory where framing things in the context of Brexit still has everyone. Reaching for the flags that they they were flying at the time, and that's probably true on both sides of the debate. If I was being totally honest, you know that's not a very good way of conducting public discussion about things. But equally, it's not something you can change overnight. Given how you know passionate, if you're looking at it positively, you know, but how how strongly expressed views on both sides were, and how tribal the debate became. But over time, I think it will become easier to have that public debate and discussion about it. But by the way, that isn't to say that we should not be making the argument. now we absolutely should, but we just need to make it in ways which probably don't provoke, you know, the same tribal passions as as the debate itself did. You
0: entered government fairly quickly after becoming an MS. What did you learn from your role as as Councillor General and, uh, you know, working with, well, then First Minister... Carwyn Jones, do you want to go through a bit of the process about being asked to enter government and your experience from that?
1: Yes, um, so I was surprised to be asked to join the government so early. I'm pleased, obviously, as well. And the role of council general is, you know, it's a broad ranging role. It's not a ministerial post in the sense of having a department, but you have a wide ranging brief in that you are dealing with all the legal aspects or the devolution aspects across every part of the government and this was happening at the time obviously in the context of you know leaving the European Union so there was a particularly controversial I suppose period uh, it, it's a fascinating role because you know whilst on the one hand it's about providing advice I defined the role as being obviously you need to make sure the government is, ask, is acting within its powers that's pretty pretty, you know pretty fundamental you know core part of the role obviously but I also felt that the government you know should be as, acting to the fullest extent of its powers and so you know that that uh, is an important way in which devolution works really uh, to have that ambitious expansive view of uh, the powers of the Senate and the government. But
0: one of the major discussions that's been going on in the last few years in the legal sector is the idea of a Welsh legal jurisdiction. So talking about that, but also the prospect of additional powers elsewhere, how likely do you see that being in the next few years or so?
1: Well, I think you know, the case for, for, for a separate jurisdiction was made very coherently, uh, very, I think, persuasively by the Thomas Commission uh, in its report on, on the justice system, the devolution of, of justice. Uh, so anyone who's particularly interested in it will, you know, be able to look at that to see what what it means in, in practical terms. It's, you know, it, it, in most countries it's a pretty uncontroversial thing. So you know, each of the states of the US have their own state jurisdiction, for example. So 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 I think it's important to see it in that broader context. I, I think it will not be delivered by a conservative government. Uh, I hope it will be delivered by a UK Labour government, and I think that that would be the right thing to do. And I think it's. I would like to
0: see it happen. Are there any other areas of policy that you would like to see devolved, or is, well even perhaps in your context as uh, education minister, are there any areas that would make your life easier if we' devolved?
1: Well, actually, education is you know almost entirely devolved. The challenge that we have in education isn't so much the devolution of the powers. It's the fact that, for example, with higher education, that we have the powers, but the mechanisms for delivering some of those powers are you know UK wide or England and Wales wide quite often. So student finance is a good example of that. That's basically run by uh, HMRC and by the student loan company. and although we have a relationship with the two, obviously they're not devolved. so there's a limit in practical terms of what you can do. So I think you know the challenge education is getting to a place where, those discussions can happen on a UK-wide basis and in a more, um, you know, in a way which better reflects the fact that there's more than one administration in the UK being affected by the decisions, really. We aren't there at all yet. Um, but that's it's more about that, really, than the devolution of extra powers in education, certainly.
0: Whilst we're on education, it's, you know, one of the biggest briefs in government, and it's been made much more challenging by the effects of the pandemic on education and entertainment in wales but what would you say are the key challenges you're currently facing and how would you characterize the overall health of the education sector
1: well i mean you've you've not you've hit the nail on the head in, in one of the points that you made there so you know from my my ambition for the education sector uh in, in wales is to reflect the principle that every child deserves excellence and i think what we have seen during covid in schools as in other parts of society is that those children, young people who perhaps don't have as much support as others at home will have had a particularly challenging time. So this year I've done a couple of policy statements really, so one was a a statement and the other one was a speech I gave to the Bevan Foundation which talks about a system-wide approach to making sure there are high standards and high aspirations as well for all our kids and that's really starting from the early years, but right through then to vocational education, higher education and beyond. And this idea as well, that Wales well, you know, should be a nation of second chances where it's never too late to learn. So recognising that not everyone, for whatever reason, has, you know, not everyone has the best opportunity uh, in school. It's really important that we can help people re-engage with their education at any point in life. But I think the effect of COVID is very significant. Obviously, uh, the COVID funding, which was available, is no longer being provided, but, but I've ring fenced money in our budget uh, for the next couple of years to make sure that the, the work we've been doing in schools, supporting teachers with that sort of bespoke support they can give to children and young people, uh, can continue. And I think every part of the education system recognises just how fundamental the idea of the well-being of learners and staff as well but you know the well-being of learners is for education recovery obviously it's always been important but i think there's a you know very much more renewed commitment and focus on on that across the system and you can see some of that in how we've responded as a government in terms of you know increasing the funding available to mental health provision in schools the whole school approach to well-being those things which Make sure that, you know, young people come to school able to learn. At the end of the day, that's the starting point, isn't it? If you've got young people coming to school not feeling settled, not feeling motivated, not feeling confident, not feeling connected, you know, that young person is never going to be able to take full advantage of their education, and we've got to make sure that they're not in that position, obviously.
0: You must be, of course, concerned, though, about the the nature of finances at the moment, looking at the way inflation is fighting against Government budgets, and in, in terms of what you can do in order to to improve the situation.
1: Yes, I mean it's a big it's a big big concern for education, as it is for some of the other spending departments. So you will have heard us talk about hmm. the Welsh government's budget being worth four billion pounds less over this three year period. That's you know that's that's inflation. That's before uh, any cuts which the UK government might announce in their uh, budget or autumn statement in a couple of weeks time and if the UK government don't change course then you know cuts to services are inevitable and they are horrendous decisions uh, which we are ministers having to to look at you know that's why it's so important that the UK government changes course you'll have heard people like you know Andrew Morgan and other council leaders talking about the pressures which Welsh local government is under as well as a consequence of this you know, it's of a scale that we haven't seen before, even during the George Osborne years. Um, uh, it's pretty unimaginable if the UK government continue on this course.
0: With that in mind, how are schools, colleges and universities set to respond to this post-pandemic landscape?
1: Well, it's um, going to be incredibly difficult. Um, we, we are in a continuous discussion, really, with uh, local education authorities Uh, with with teaching unions um, to, you know, understand what this looks like on the ground in schools. Because of the way we've continued to fund schools during the period of COVID, the the level of school reserves uh, at the moment is quite significantly higher than it's ever been before. Um, So schools and local authorities are looking at how they can use some of those funds to help some of the current pressures But obviously, you know, once those funds are spent, they're spent. Uh, It's not a sustainable uh, long-term way of addressing the cost pressures. But we had a discussion a few weeks ago with local uh, authorities and teaching unions, and we were all pretty ashen at the end of the call, really discussing the implications for for schools and colleges. So, you know, that's why it's so important that we get the UK government to recognise the scale of the challenge.
0: You are also engaging in quite a lot of wide ranging reforms and innovations, you know, such as potentially expanding the the school day and proposing ideas to remodel the the term calendar. What has been your driving force in proposing or or considering these reforms? Are you just exploring options or do you have an overarching plan to try and reform the school system?
1: Well, on the the school day, so we ran some trials for, for 10 weeks in a number of schools to test some ways of extending the school day and the reason for doing that is to give young people an opportunity to experience other you know extracurricular activities outside the school so some of that was around you know art uh, and music some of it was around additional sports some of it was around chess and gaming so there's a range of uh different activities and so we're working through it moment evaluating what we've learned from that uh from that set of trials what's what's been clearly the case is that young people have found it a good way to re-engage with, with school after you know, a very difficult time. Um, so we're looking at the moment at what we can do into the future with that. Obviously we'll talk to our social partners before we, before we make any decisions on that. On the school year, so, so the driver for that is twofold really. One, the long summer holiday, the effect that has in terms of learning loss uh, on young people, you know, including perhaps some of the most disadvantaged young people. That's the first aspect of it. And then hearing from teachers saying that the summer, sorry, the autumn term, which we're in now, can be pretty punishing because it's so long. So obviously uh, we're not the first government to look at uh, reforming the school year. It's happened in local authority areas in England, for example, and it's happened in other parts of the world. So we are drawing on all of that experience what we've done is we've done a few over the last few months um done a piece of uh, broad research to see how people felt about the school year generally um and we've had some you know some interesting responses to that most people felt there was a case for change people couldn't agree on what the kind of change would be which i suppose in a way is a metaphor for politics generally really but but, you know, the key thing is we will, you know, we will be consulting on this and we'll do that uh, later in this academic year, but we're working with uh, education authorities and teaching at the moment about what that could look like. But there'll be, you know, the key thing is there'll be plenty of opportunity to hear from uh, parents, young people, teachers, but also business sectors that might be affected. So tourism, child care, childcare sectors as well. So you know, there's a range of people who would be affected by any change. So we want to make sure there's a big discussion around it.
0: One of the other major changes, of, of course, is the, the new curriculum. Some may argue that in this great period of flux, now would be the worst time to implement a, a new curriculum. But what, what would your response be to that?
1: Well, I think that the, it's, the, it's quite obviously the right time to do it. Uh, and the reason is this. There was a judgment to be taken in the heat of the COVID experience about whether now was the right time to continue with the plan to roll up the curriculum or whether there was a case for delaying it. And in the end, I was absolutely persuaded by two things, really. Speaking to primary schools, generally speaking, primary schools have had further to travel on the new curriculum journey, if you like, because of the way we teach uh, young people in primary schools. Uh, And whilst obviously people had anxieties about going from COVID into the new curriculum, generally speaking, primary schools felt broadly ready to do that. And I also felt that the COVID time was one when, when learner well-being, focus on flexibility, uh, you know, looking at different ways to teach was, you know, the way that we were, were able to make sure young people continue to be educated during that period. And I, I felt that focus on the learner, that focus on well-being, that flexibility, that creativity, that innovation that we saw teachers uh, and teaching assistants, you know, doing amazingly, really. that's what the new curriculum requires so it felt to me like that was you know its own preparation really for the curriculum and obviously I gave secondary schools the option of starting this year or delaying for a year to start next year and broadly half of them decided to go this year and half of them decided to go next year so I think that tells you there's a reasonable level of confidence in the system.
0: Do you have any concerns about the resources that teachers are using and the potential maybe for teachers to default to tried and tested sources rather than embracing some of the potential benefits of the new curriculum
1: well i think that is always a risk and there's a culture change isn't there um when you bring in a new curriculum so it's more than in a sense it's more than the the way you're teaching it's it's you know we are saying to teachers we trust you to deliver this curriculum and to tailor the curriculum to design the curriculum in your school in a way which reflects individual community in which the school is but also the needs of the range of pupils in your classes and I think that's you know that's the really exciting thing about the curriculum really you can engage and I've seen I've seen it I've been able to sit in some classes and watch this happen and it's really you know it's so uplifting you can start with one experience or idea and then that takes you on a journey and, and you can see the you know the young people just engaged with it in a way which I don't think Probably I was, and I was their age, really. Um, but yes, you're right to say that. You know, there's a there's a tension then, isn't there, between making sure there's a consistent approach across the system generally, but a very flexible approach at school level. I think we've I think we've got that balance right in terms of how we design the curriculum. There's obviously a framework; some aspects are mandatory, and we ask schools to work in clusters with each other. But that balance is one which we obviously need to keep keep an eye on throughout. Really, one of the things I. have being clear that I want to make sure is understood is that it's a curriculum for Wales you know so it's not a curriculum for parts of Wales it's a curriculum for Wales so teachers are able to access uh, resources from any other part of Wales as they as they design their curriculum I think that's a really important part of it.
0: So There's the a potential upcoming of course for some industrial action in schools and universities that must be a, a very difficult Process of, of of thought for you as a as a as a Labour government uh, and as a Labour MS. So, how do you deal with a, a potential industrial action in an area where you know you are responsible? And how do you reconcile that as a trade unionist?
1: Well, you start from the point that people. I've said this in my in my response to points which the teaching unions have raised with me directly. Our starting point as a government is that it's perfectly reasonable for teachers sisters not to expect their wages to be devalued by inflation now, that's the starting point but in order to be able to meet the sort of claims which have come in you know the sorts of funds the sort of funding available to us is, doesn't begin to to meet that level of claim really so we, we could not meet that kind of claim without additional funding from the UK government but that isn't to say that I don't recognise it as being a perfectly reasonable ask obviously as education minister I don't want to see strikes in our schools and colleges I know that people the teachers making this decision whether they'll vote for industrial election will be obviously weighing that very carefully in the balance won't they obviously um, but I also recognize the disappointment and you know people have rights in the area of industrial action so we, we absolutely recognize that as a government
0: It would be strange of us not to touch somewhat on the many crazy goings-on in Westminster at this time. What has been your response to that, um, just sort of personally and politically? And do you think that now it's almost certain that we will see a Labour government in the next election?
1: Yes, I think we will. And I think the, the country's crying out for it. And I've just been offended, if I'm honest, by the way in which the Conservative leadership uh, elections have been, you know, going on, and the kind of uh, obvious machinations that have happened in Parliament around that, and it's all been, you know, regarded as a piece of political theatre and who's up and who's down, who's backing who and who's not backing who, and that's, you know, I think you've seen some MPs backing, you know, two different candidates on the same day, for heaven's sake, you know, which just shows a complete absence of principle and values, isn't it really? But I've been, I'm sure. All of us have been offended by seeing it play out in that way because of, you know, the absolutely profound effects it's had on the lives of ordinary people across the UK. Grossly irresponsible actions by, uh, by Liz Truss and Quasi uh, Kwarteng in that budget has, you know, imposed so many extra burdens on families in Wales and right across the UK. The interest rates compounding, the cost of living crisis that was already there. Uh, and I just think they are living in a completely different world. And that's been exposed, I think, over the last few weeks.
0: What do you think the major challenges facing um, Keir Starmer then are as he approaches this election? And do you think they are the same challenges that the Welsh Labour government face? Or do you think they're slightly different, one being in government, one being in opposition?
1: Well, I think, you know, the, the challenges are slightly different, aren't they? So, now I think, I think he will make an excellent Prime Minister I think that from a Welsh point of view, having a Welsh Labour government in Wales and a Labour government in Westminster is the best possible way for us to make sure that people of Wales have what they need and have support, both at a devolved and a Westminster level, that we need in this incredibly difficult time. So I'm very, very much looking forward to seeing that happen. You know, we don't yet know when the general election will will take place. I think the difficult challenges which an incoming Labour government will face is the parlous state of the UK economy, which the UK, which the Conservative government uh, will be handing on. You know, we've got a strong uh, set of commitments in terms of the cost of living response, uh, the windfall tax, uh, you know, the sooner that is introduced, the better. But I think it'll be very difficult for an incoming Labour government facing a kind of, you know, mess which the Tory government will be bequeathing.
0: One of the other things we don't know, of course, is, is when Mark Drakeford will, will stand down as First Minister. And then obviously, uh, he has said he may go at, some, he'll probably go at some point this term. When you backed Mark in 2018, you said that the, first, the new First Minister wanted the experience of handling Brexit negotiations and funding negotiations with the UT government, because they'll be the two most pressing issues we face. When there is a new First Minister, what do you think the qualities that that person will need are and what do you think the main challenges will be at that point?
1: Well, look, I, no one is in any rush at all for Mark to stand down. I think he has shown excellent leadership from the moment he was elected and I think you know there'll be plenty of time probably to discuss at some future point uh, the next chapter in the leadership of the party uh, and Uh, and the government but I think you know what we've seen in Mark it it has been a a blend of solidity and principle Um, and I think it's been a very difficult time to be uh, first minister very you know an incredible set of challenges uh, both from a Covid point of view and now uh, going into you know how we can respond to the cost of living challenges Uh, and what you see in Mark is a man of principle I think trying to tried to navigate very difficult circumstances. I think we've been very successful haven't been in government in terms of renewing ourselves in government. And I think there'll be plenty of time in the future to talk about what happens next, I think. But uh, I think Mark has been a very, very effective leader indeed and continues to be, and uh, I look forward to continuing to be our leader for some time yet.
0: Jeremy Miles, thank you so much for coming to talk to us this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find Here Ith on social media, on Twitter and on Facebook at Pod or at our website, www.walespolitics.com. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.